howdy, y'all, and welcome to The Daily Grind with your host, John Spencer. Grab a mug of your favorite coffee and get ready to become the sharpest tool in the shed when it comes to water cooler chatter, conference room banner, and job side small talk. This week, my big sister Carla Cockrum and I will brew your brain with some historical facts and a rundown on today's date, and we'll sharpen your wit with random musings just to get your brain gears turning in the morning. Plus, I'll offer up some thoughts to ponder on your walk with Jesus. Hey, Carla, good morning. What is your favorite hot drink besides coffee? Uh, there is no hot drink besides coffee, is there? What are you talking about? Hot tea. Hot tea. I, like hot tea. I do. Cinnamon. Cinnamon tea, yes. For me, I think my favorite hot drink that's not coffee is tea drink, too, but it's uh, chai masala. Oh, oh, I love chai. Oh, yeah. building on the cinnamon theme there. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Hey, it's Wednesday, October 11th, and on this day in 1885, the first adding machine was patented by Dor Eugene Felt, oh. uh, that 1885. That's incredible. Yeah. The Comptometer number <laughs> 3945, yeah, in 1885. And in 1958, NASA launched the Lunar Probe Pioneer 1. Okay, I'm not familiar with Pioneer One. How about that? And in 1962, Pope John the 23rd convened the Second Vatican Council, changing several rules, including saying the Mass in local languages oh. and having the priest face the congregation. Both of those seem like positive things to me. <laughs> yeah, but like in part because. <laughs> For one thousand <laughs> whatever you we guys were just going, it's all going to be in a language you can't understand, and my back's going to be to you. Yeah. I wonder what <laughs> oh gosh. So, uh, nineteen sixty-eight, Apollo Seven launched. They had a ten-day flight, October eleventh through the twenty-second. Wow. And on this date in nineteen seventy-three, as told by authorities. Mississippi residents Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker were abducted by aliens. Oh, <laughs> I didn't. I don't know about this. Yeah, I don't either. But I'm just saying. Okay. When that started. And on this date in 1984, I'm all in kind of space. Astronaut Catherine D. Sullivan became the first American woman to perform a spacewalk on the Space Shuttle Challenger. How fun is that? I know. Okay. Way to Catherine so October 11th is General Pulaski Memorial Day. Okay. For those of you who are not up on your American history, he played a significant role in the American Revolution, especially at the Battle of Savannah. It's my party day. Okay. <laughs> and I guess you can cry if you want to. I guess. Uh, it's sausage pizza day. Okay. I like that. And it's Southern Food Heritage Day. Okay. Yeah, Southern Food Heritage Day. Okay. I'm thinking that means a lot of things fried and covered gravy. Right. I was thinking fried chicken. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And now it's that time on the Daily Grind to sharpen your wit. The North Star is the 49th brightest star in the sky. 49th. Okay. 40, there are 48 brighter stars. Yeah, you know, If you think about it, 
what we call the day is just night with only one star present. Correct. Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> hey, the Wright brothers. Yes. Where did they make their first flight? Well, I'm tempted to say Kitty Hawk, but that's probably not right. Well, you you would say what I would have said. Everybody says, but wrong. I'm here to set the record straight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do tell. Kitty Hawk was where the brothers sent their message of success to their father. Oh. But their flight was at Kill Devil Hills. Oh, okay. Now, as far as branding, I just want to go, who would, first of all, want to do anything like attempt to put yourself in flight at a place called Hill oh, Devil, Devil Hill? <laughs> Kitty Hawk, though, much, much nicer name. But anyway, yeah, but that's not, they weren't there. That's just where the message got sent. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Consider yourself corrected. Okay. You know, a lot of times I trust the top comment online more than I do the title of the article. <laughs> I know what you mean. <gasps> Are you familiar with the Bayo Tapestry? I am not. So it's it's B-A-Y-E-A-U-X. Okay. Bayo. Bayo. You know, but not like a Bayou. Technically, it is so it's an 11th century artifact uh, that depicts William the Conqueror's conquering England. Oh, but called the Bayou Tapestry, but it is in fact an embroidery. Oh, so, so mistitled. Where yeah, is it? Is it in England? It's an embroidery. Yes, it is in England okay. right now. So uh, it is in the Reading Museum. If you ever want to just go over there and say, "Hey, could I have a peek at that thing?" Bio tapestry. Tapestry. Okay. Embroidery. Okay. So, I like setting my cousins across the pond straight. As you should. Um, I read this quote the other day, and I just, uh, it was worth jotting down, so I'm going to share it. C.J. Tully says that it hurts when you lose a friend to death, but it hurts even more when you lose a friend still living. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. hurts. Leo the lion is the name of the Metro Golden Mare MGM mascot. Oh, Leo. Right. Heard him roar many times. Carla, a group of flamingos. Okay. Is called the flamboyance. No. <laughs> oh, flamboyance of flamingo. Boy, that just really rolls off the tongue. Flamboyance. Yeah, that's what I say. Yeah. Okay. We're using that one. Here's interesting. Did you know, though, that on planet Earth, there are more fake flamingos in the world than real living flamingos. Well, I didn't. But, you know, that doesn't really surprise me. I see right. them in front yards all the time. Oh. Yep. In large flamboyant groups, yes. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and you can go, what a flamboyant <laughs> of flamingos. I'm definitely going to say that. Carla, do you remember... The Disney animated classic Fantasia. I do. So if you remember, Mickey is the little apprentice and he gets in trouble. But the sorcerer that he worked for, do you remember his name? I don't remember his name. His name was Yin Sid. Two words, Y-E-N-S-I-D. Which, if you spell backwards, is Disney. Disney. 
is me. Okay. Yeah. How about that? I know. There's an Easter egg for you to look for sometime. <laughs> and now it's that time on the daily grind to enrich your faith. When I was younger, I prided myself on having really great eyesight. Now I'm older. I need glasses. And I remember I fought getting them. But when I finally got them, it was like the whole world was in HD. I mean, I could see distant trees and buildings and crisp detail. Everything was more focused, clearer. And, you know, I had a similar experience looking at just two words that occur repeatedly in the New Testament. The words in Christ. Now, those words are used to describe the true reality of Christian believers. It's a doctrine that theologians call the union with Christ. The idea that when someone comes to faith in Jesus, they are united to him spiritually. They're not just followers of Christ. They are in some sense now situated in him. And I think this idea is key to understanding the heart of the Christian faith. It brings it all into sharper vision, as we'll see. The language of being in Christ is the New Testament's main way to describe what we call being a Christian. One of the surprises when you open the pages of the New Testament, though, is how little the word Christian appears. I mean, given the fact that this is a book for Christians, you'd expect it to be littered with the words Christian and Christianity. But the word Christian only shows up three times. And one of these is referring to how the word Christian was initially used as a nickname for the new followers of Jesus. And by the way, it was a derisive term used to refer to followers of the way who did not acknowledge the emperor of Rome. And it was meant to be a form of mockery, calling them little Christ. Evidently, the name stuck, and Christians had been happy to carry that label ever since. But whereas the word... But whereas the word Christian only comes up three times in the New Testament, the language of being in Christ comes up over 200 times. The Apostle Paul uses it more than 160 times. Let the Bible fall open on the page of virtually any New Testament epistle, and you'll see this kind of language often several times. It's pretty much everywhere. And this is the New Testament's default way of speaking of followers of Jesus. But it's not ours today. Look, let me give you a couple of quick examples. In the second letter to the Corinthians, there's a place where Paul needed to describe an anonymous Christian man. And if we were writing that today, we'd probably say something like, I know this Christian guy. But Paul writes, I know a man in Christ. And that's in 2 Corinthians 12 too. To Paul, that's the most natural and obvious way to talk about another follower of Jesus. And he's presuming that it's the most natural and obvious way for his readers too. He doesn't have to include a sidebar explaining what being in Christ means. He just refers to a man in Christ and everyone knows what he's talking about. That was the go-to terminology. Similarly, the book of Acts describes a surge of people coming to faith in Christ. And we might expect it to say, a lot of people joined the church, or a lot of people became Christians. But in Acts, it says, believers 
were added to the Lord. Acts 5.14. Not added to the Christian movement, but added to the Lord. When people become Christians, they're not just joining some group or some religious institution. They're joining Christ himself. They're being added to Jesus. Here's why this matters. The New Testament is the founding document for Christianity. And if the New Testament's main language for describing followers of Jesus is different to, to ours, more than likely, it means that its understanding of what it means to be a Christian is different from ours too. And this isn't just a case of oh, you say tomato and I say tomato. If we're seeing the Christian life differently to how the New Testament does, more than likely, there's things we're missing, which is needing glasses illustration comes in. When you think of someone having a relationship with Jesus, I suspect we tend to think in terms of a voter's relationship to a political party or a fan's relationship to a sport team. We might think in terms of following, of loyalty, of allegiance, perhaps with reverence, but the idea that we are in Christ suggests something far more intimate, more organic, more precious. It makes such a difference. Jesus speaks of his people's union with him as being like the relationship of a branch to a tree. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches in John 15. His people's connection with him is vital. It's not remote, able to inspire from across a vast distance of space and time. He is the very life and nourishment, and it flows into those who are in him. Our spiritual health is derived from him. The Christian life is not lived only in the strength of each individual believer. Being in Christ also speaks of intimacy. Jesus described himself as the Christ, the Son of the Father, the Savior, and he also described himself as the bridegroom throughout the whole Bible. God presents himself not just as a deity up in heaven, but a divine husband to his people here on earth. They, in turn, are not just described as his subjects, but as his bride. So when Jesus announces himself as the bridegroom, it's clear what he's claiming. Those Bible passages that speak of believers' relationship with Jesus in marital terms begin to come into clearer focus. When we understand the idea of a union with Christ, in fact, the New Testament goes as far as to say that it's a relationship with Jesus. That is the ultimate marriage. And our earthly marriages are just a shadow, a picture of this greater reality. This also makes sense of what lies at the very heart of the Christian faith, the crucifixion of Jesus. The word tells us that Jesus's death would be for others on their behalf. Christians understand the cross to be a form of vicarious atonement, Jesus taking the place and bearing the sins and enduring the punishment of sinners, and sinners in turn being made righteous in God's sight. But we might ask how it can be just for a God who in the Old Testament condemns punishing the innocent and acquitting the guilty to seemingly do just that through Jesus's death. But it's the very idea of a believer being one with Jesus that makes sense of this. In a marriage, what one person has rightly becomes 
owned by the other. When Marcy and I got married, what I had became hers. What she had became mine. So it is with Christ. He's not a third party being punished for someone else. He's the bridegroom of his people, utterly one with them in such a way that their sins can be absorbed by him and his righteousness is shared with them. Being in Christ is what makes all this possible. The cross then is clearer when seen through the lens of the doctrine of union with Christ. When we understand being in Christ, everything in Christian belief, the Christian hope, Christian community, all of it makes more sense. All of it comes into sharper focus when we realize that a Christian first and foremost is someone who is in Christ. Lord, as I start a new day, I am grateful for the gift of life that you've given me. I am thankful for the opportunity, sir, to live and breathe. And most of all, I'm thankful for the hope that I have in Christ. Father, you have brought me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your precious son, who is light. And I don't want to dwell in darkness anymore. Thank you for making me alive in Christ. And thank you all for joining me on another episode of The Daily Grind, all that podcast stuff. If you liked it, subscribe, rate it, share it with a friend. And I will see you tomorrow on another episode of The Daily Grind.